Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I awoke this morning with a strange sense of foreboding. There were messages on my phone from friends and family around the world and they were all about Boris, the genuine shock of the knowledge that the Prime Minister had been taken into the intensive care ward at St Thomas's Hospital in London last night has affected everyone. And it's only natural. As Julie Hartley Brewer explained magnificently this morning, Boris is not just our Prime Minister. He is a totem pole for the health of the nation. He is larger than life. He is a character. He is a man who seems unassailable, a man who seems like he can beat anything. The news that his life could be in danger was truly shocking. And I think we were all affected in the same way. Uh, I've been following an awful lot of you on social media, and many of you, some friends of mine, some people I don't even know, are all exhibiting the same kind of feelings. But as you might expect, the show today will be an oasis of calm. Of course we wish Boris Johnson well, and we are hearing that he is not on a ventilator at this point, which is very good news. We will monitor the situation, and we will bring you all the news and updates that you expect from Talk Radio as you have come to expect from Talk Radio because we are here not to give you the bad news, not to bring you down, not to be pessimists, not to be critical overly of anything that the government is doing, but to ask the right questions, to try and get information for you that you can use, to try and be steady for you, to try and reassure you that things will be okay. What we won't do is become maudlin, what you won't hear is sadness, and what you can expect is our relentless positivity and belief that this horrible situation will pass and that nothing has actually changed despite the news from Downing Street. We are still going to stay home, we are still going to persevere and we are still going to do our level best to beat this coronavirus. Are we not? 0344 499 1000 is the number. As ever, we need to hear from all of you because you are the eyes and ears of the independent republic. I've said many times before that at some point we will all know someone that has had the coronavirus. Perhaps... This is that moment. So if you have a story for us, if you have something to tell us, or if you simply want someone to talk to, please call this number, 0344 499 1000. We'll be talking to a host of guests, of course. Uh, we'll be trying to get some information for you, particularly for those of you who have fallen through some of the cracks financially, uh, who have told us about that. We're going to be specifically asking... Uh, Gemma Godfrey, the money mentor today from The Times, about what you do uh, if you can't actually somehow regard yourself as an employee because you joined a firm too early uh, or too late in March. 
as it were. Uh, also, we will be returning to our homeschooling section as well, uh, where we will go to outer space with Greg Smyre Rumsby once more uh, to find out just exactly what the pink moon means for us all this week. And as ever, we are live streaming on YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget, you're listening to Mike Graham. This is the Independent Republic on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So let me first start with uh, um, a word of reassurance, I suppose, because Boris Johnson um, has done what I think is a sterling job uh, working on uh, the coronavirus problem since the beginning. Uh, people asking the question as to whether or not he should have self-isolated sooner. People asking the question of whether he should have been going to hospital sooner. All of these questions are nonsensical questions, which I will not entertain. Uh, he is in intensive care. Dominic Raab is now deputising for the Prime Minister. He will be holding all the briefings that we will be talking to him through later. But basically... Aside from the fact that Boris Johnson has gone into uh, intensive care and has remained there overnight, nothing else in the whole situation regarding coronavirus has changed. So let's just bear that in mind. Let us just keep calm. Let us just carry on and let us just assume um, and hope that Boris will emerge from this at the other end of it, like many people do, uh, and he will be just fine. Let's talk to Nick Dubois, who is, of course, former Conservative MP, former Special Advisor to Dominic Raab as well, and also author of Confessions of a Recovering MP. Nick, a very good morning to you. Uh, good morning to you, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Of course, um, I think probably you would, would would admit, as I will, that last night when I saw the news that he had been moved into intensive care, uh, it seemed like an intensely worrying situation. But I wonder whether the fact that he is still in intensive care and that he is still, as far as we know it, not actually on any kind of mechanical device, that that is a kind of encouraging piece of news. Yes, and I think number 10 made it clear he'd gone in as a precautionary measure in case a ventilator was needed. Yeah. Now, that, that the suggestion there is from doctors, and, and quite legitimately, that you don't go into intensive care unless you need one-to-one -one care yeah. and one-to-one -one, uh, attention. So I think that's utterly legitimate. I think the important thing to understand, now, you know, Mike, I am not a medic, but I have the advantage of having a daughter who is um, a, 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 a doctor yeah. on the front line in hospital. And and the point about this is the condition can change really rapidly. Yes, they obviously were concerned enough to put him in there. My understanding is, and Michael Gove has confirmed this this morning, he's not on a ventilator. Long may that continue. Yes, absolutely right. And meanwhile, uh, the process of government does continue. I mean, there was a lot of conversations around yesterday uh, as to whether or not Boris would have to take the decision to kind of step aside for a while in order just to complete his recovery. Um, that's kind of been forced on him now. So Dominic Raab, a man you know pretty well, uh, is in charge. Now, it's a tricky one, this, isn't it? Because I don't know how much credence you put on the Sunday Times story from the weekend, but it sounded as though inside of Downing Street, without Boris, it's a bit of a rat's nest. Well, I wouldn't go so far. And to be honest, um, I think it was uh, prob probably Tim Shipman had a hand in that. He's a very respected uh, journalist and knows his stuff. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, if a leader... Uh, is incapacitated yeah. uh, at all, there is a chance of a political vacuum forming. What's good about what's happening now is the system is working. Yeah. Dominic Raab is not just Foreign Secretary, he's also First Secretary of State, hmm. and he has been designated to deputise for the Prime Minister. Now, what actually happens is that in government, 
what what you see is a lot of decisions are taken by cabinet committees and then ultimately by the cabinet. And they Dominic is very much going to be, as is the prime minister, uh, first amongst equals. And that's how it works in this country, supported by uh, a civil service. Mm. So actually what we've seen is a smooth um, uh, operation when the prime minister went into intensive care government will carry on. I think it's fair to say um, that probably most members of this government were really quite shocked when uh, the news broke that he went into intensive care. So be it. But it it is quite remarkable as the machinery of government will carry on. And I don't buy... I mean, look, it's inevitable. You're going to get lots of stories about um, politicians and rivalry. Mm. I just don't buy that. This is one national crisis where they are all getting on with the job, carrying out the prime minister's instructions, which were very clear, which is let's maintain this lockdown, let's follow the scientific advice uh, and until we see the numbers coming down of uh, infections, uh, admissions and hopefully and ultimately deaths. Yes, because we were hopeful that that might be beginning to be the pattern uh, as of yesterday and the day before. Uh, I guess it remains to be seen how the rest of this week goes. But certainly this is a very pivotal week, isn't it, in the, in the so far timeline uh, of the coronavirus outbreak. Yes, look, uh, I know I know. behind every statistic there is a, a, a tragic story when someone dies, but most of us would have thought when we heard the numbers released yesterday and the day before yesterday that they were not high as, um, as previous numbers. So you kind of instinctively and perversely take a bit of encouragement from that. We have to be careful, of course, because there's a lot of talk of these weekend lag in numbers. Uh, and the key thing as well is, of course, uh, how we're controlling infections. But this this week, we have been given advice, you could, uh, which comes out in these press daily briefings, that we are heading towards the peak. Let us see how that goes. Hopefully, we can minimise as many deaths and, and, and reduce the infections. But the true effects of lockdown, Mike, this you know this relative pain that we're going through uh, is actually quite 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 significant in the in the sense that we have to keep it up because we won't see the results of that for at least 3 weeks by the way that wasn't my phone going off just in case you <laughs> thought that no quite well this is the thing i mean there are some people who are still not quite accepting accepting that this lockdown has to go on because they're thinking that you know it might well it might not work well you go well hang on a minute the whole point of it is to make sure that, that we are not overwhelmed in the hospitals of our country and that we do not have a sudden rush for ventilators and equipment, which is short in every single part of the world by the way um, and for me that policy would appear to be working Yes, and 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 I think it's now more than ever, and perhaps you know one of one of the the the, the realities of the prime minister going into intensive care is that pe- people, those who are still not buying into the lockdown argument, and there's not that many, uh, will understand entirely why this is happening. Anyone can get this uh, infection. Anyone yes. can pick it up if we don't do social distancing. Now is not the time to take our foot off the brake. If anything, it's time to intensify that foot on the brake and make sure we observe them even more rigidly than we're doing now. Yes, exactly right. And what does your daughter say about the way that uh, the NHS is coping without having to give too much away uh, in terms of what she well, may or may not have said? Well, well, I'm I, I'm sort of torn as a father. She she's a doctor. She wants to be back on the front line doing her bit, but she's um, happily pregnant, uh-huh. uh, so is now no longer on that front okay. line. She, you know, 
she she has been uh, i mean obviously she's in touch with all her colleagues and she has been quite frank when there have been some shortages of of, of ppe in the past i think that situation is very much improving uh, I well, mean, do you know what's interesting you, about if, the ppe situation right and i'm not saying this because i know about every single hospital in the land but over the course of the last two weeks when we've been hearing from the doctors association the bma that doctors are frightened to go to work that nurses are terrified that they're going to catch the coronavirus and die every single medic that we have spoken to on the front line has said we've got plenty of protective equipment uh, the, the hospitals are not being overrun uh, we are doing just fine thank you very much indeed so i think we have well, to be I a think bit careful about that as well and i think i think the key thing you've actually said there is let's just remember for a minute what was the first point of the government strategy those four weeks ago they said we have to contain this uh, 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 d disease, this virus, so that we don't overwhelm uh, our, uh, our uh, A&Es and the NHS capacity. And uh, to be blunt, that is what we are hearing every day, that they are managing to achieve. That doesn't mean these people are working their socks off. It does not mean that in some hospitals they are under huge pressure, particularly where they've had to expand the ICU, IC units that we saw at UCL last night. But the fact of the matter is, we are fortunate enough at this situation that we have been able to increase capacity and not to totally overwhelm what's been happening. And so as long as we can do that, it means we can protect more lives and we can save more people. And I think that was the outline of the strategy right at the very beginning. And the government have ruthlessly stuck with that. Yes, I think so. Um, and it's easy, of course, to pick holes in what has gone before, because with each week that has passed in this particular pandemic crisis, you know, the, everything has been moving around. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a story which moved so quickly uh, or, or the circumstances of which move so quickly and change from one thing into another uh, literally overnight. Well, literally, um, they are dealing with something that is brand new. Yeah. Uh, every hour in this event, uh, in, in this uh, stage of uh, this national crisis, every hour is a prototype. You are literally learning on the job as you are going along. That's true of the medics. That's true of the scientists. That's true of our doctors and our nurses, our frontline people. And, of course, it's true of politicians. But the longer this goes on, uh, the more we learn and the more we will get to grips with it. Yeah, absolutely right. So as far as Dominic Raab is concerned, um, tell us a bit about him. You know, what we see perhaps is not what we get, I don't think, because he's not one of the greatest communicators in the world, but I suspect he, he, he comes across worse than, than he actually is, if you know what I mean. Well, I, I must tell you, and by the way, this husky voice, it, don't, please don't read it's anything not, into it. It's not it. doing it for me, I'm afraid. You know, if, if you're looking for any sort of sympathy, you're not going to get any from me. <laughs> not at all. I don't know where it's come from. But, but uh, one of the things, I, I first knew Don when he came into Parliament in 2010, and he quickly earned the respect of his colleagues, not least because of the background he had. He, has, he, he was, for example, um, he's obviously a lawyer. He was with the International War Crimes Tribunal on yeah. behalf of the Foreign Office, you know, he was confronting people like Slobodan Milosevic. Mm. So this, 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 is, this is no lightweight, as you can tell. But above all, I think his um, um, most amazing quality that he has is he is, uh, he is a very 
cool-headed, level-headed individual. And I've seen him right in the thick of things in the meetings with uh, Michel Barnier, which certainly had their tense moments. Mm. Uh, I've, I've seen him operating in Downing Street on a regular basis. And he's extremely intelligent. He's got this very cool head. And he has this wonderful, stubborn optimism. Mm. You know, not a lot phases him. And, uh, you know, he, 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 he and Boris Johnson, actually, although they present as very different characters, they have this shared optimism, which I think is is absolutely marvellous. You know, he's a he's a tough cookie, but his capacity for work, coupled with basically his forensic mind and this ability to digest and respond to a brief mm. very effectively, um, uh, I, I think is 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 remarkable. My job as chief of staff was to try and be two steps ahead of him. Right, I rarely achieved that. No, quite. And also, I quite like there's an air of sort of menace about him as well. And we all know he's a bit of a martial arts expert. But I wonder whether he's going to hit the withering uh, uh, sort of look that he gives to the journalists when they're asking stupid questions. And I'm not in any way harassing journalists at this point. But some of the questions that, that the sort of the, the usual suspects or the three stooges, as I like to call them, of Kunzberg, Rigby and Peston. Right. I mean, if I was standing there, I think I'd be literally going, you know what, guys, today, if you don't ask a question that's actually new... We're just going to ban you from the press conference and you can send somebody else because I like the way he looked at them. He, he just looked as if he was, uh, he was not going to put up with too much of their nonsense. Well, um, I always see a glint in his eye, but I, I think uh, I think he uh, he's he, he actually is very comfortable and in, enjoys taking questions. Uh, I've never seen him uh, ever worry about that. I mean, we used to have these press conferences with Michel Barnier afterwards, uh, and I just used to marvel how how calm and cool he was we come out of a two-hour negotiating session then straight into the uh, open media a huge collection of media and 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 he would take them head on he would answer them uh, candid he would always answer them candidly uh, and authentically i think there's a streak of auth 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 authenticity authenticity yes. in him that I think is very recherche. By the way, you know, you talk about his martial arts. Mm. The thing that I always used to find um, quite curious was when I was in his uh, in his office, There's uh, in his parliamentary uh, office, uh, he, he was always followed by his poster of um, Muhammad Ali that oh, adorns yeah. his wall. Okay, that's excellent stuff. Well, listen, Nick, um, take care of yourself. Uh, our best wishes to you and yours, and we'll speak to you again soon. Nick Dubois, a former Conservative MP, former Special Advisor to Dominic Raab, and also author of Confessions of a Recovering M. MP. I quite like the look of Dominic Raab. Lots of people don't have much good to say about him. They think they say he's a bit wooden, he's a bit robotic. But listen, you know, you can't have a replacement for Boris Johnson that is Boris Johnson, because Boris Johnson is singularly, a very singular individual, which is possibly why so many people have been so badly affected by the news that he's not very well. However, we will keep bringing you updates on that. Uh, we will be going live down to uh, St Thomas's Hospital. Uh, we will tell you whenever there is any news about, Dom, about uh, Boris Johnson we will bring it to you right here on Talk Radio. But we also want to hear from you as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We need your stories. Uh, we need your experiences. We need to know what you're seeing, uh, what you're looking at. I had to go to the shops yesterday to buy some stuff. There was no queue, incredibly, in the supermarket that I went to. The last time I went there last week, there was a massive queue uh, and they didn't have an awful lot of stuff inside on the shelves. To, uh, yesterday, they had plenty of stuff on the shelves there was no queue, and it was all terribly orderly and terribly British. So I was quite encouraged by that. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. A couple of quick tweets for you. Fee says this, um, quite right, MG. I wish the media would stop indulging Ash Sarker and Owen Jones with their student politics outlook of the world with zero life experience and no basic understanding of economics. Absolutely right. And Cape says, James was spot on. Uh, I thought Keir Starmer's name was an anagram at first, and to be honest, that probably is all he is good for. Please don't get me started on Rayner. Uh, that would be Angela Rayner, not Jay Rayner, uh, who's also blocked me as well. I've been blocked by everyone called Rayner for some bizarre reason. I don't quite know why that is. Don't forget, coming up later on today, we will be recording Plank of the Week uh, because uh, we all need a good laugh in this day and age and there will be plenty uh, of planks to speak about. And don't forget, uh, you will be able to get your hands on that uh, as a podcast. We're not allowed to film it anymore at the moment, but basically you will be able to uh, uh, to hear the podcast later on today and it's in the, um, the company of comedian Steve Allen and Emily Carver as well. So they'll be giving us their, uh, their planks of the week. Right now though, uh, let's speak to John McTiernan, because we were talking just before uh, with James about the shadow cabinet that has been appointed. Um, there have been some interesting reactions to some of the people who have been named in it. John, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Well, morning. A few, uh, a few eyebrows raised, I suppose, because it's a kind of, uh, it's a sort of catch-all shadow cabinet we've got here. We've got, um, you know, Charlie Faulkner being brought back from the days of the Blairites. We've got Ed Miliband, who you'd have to call a centrist uh, of, of any kind in the Labour Party. We've also got David Lammy, Angela Rayner and Rebecca Long-Bailey. So it's, it's quite eclectic, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, Keir has always said that what he was going to do was unite the party, and he has. He's got rid uh, of the Deadwood. He's giving a chance to um, people like Rebecca Long-Bailey. Um, he's bringing back some uh, kind of well, wise and experienced hands like, um, uh, like Charlie, Charlie Faulkner. And I think um, in, in the year in which climate change at COP26 was going to be a massive issue, and it was smart to bring back Ed Miliband. Now, the Glasgow meeting on climate change is being postponed until next year. Yeah. But that was always going to be one of the Prime Minister's main ambitions for the first part of his uh, premiership. Boris wants to make Glasgow a turning point in the global battle against climate change. Ed's got the experience. Ed was at Copenhagen. Ed knows why that meeting failed. And you can imagine that actually... A combination of um, Alok Sharma and Ed Miliband working for Britain to define a green agenda and a growth agenda that's green uh, that that's taken on by globally would actually be quite a good thing. So you've got some really interesting potential there, given the overall framing that Keir has, which is it's going to be constructive criticism and not make, you know not making. Party political points. Yeah. Really, the problem for Ed Miliband, back, of course, in the, back, the problem with, for Ed Miliband in the green agenda, though, is that he was also the environment minister during Jordan Brown's um, um, prime ministership. When was he not? When uh, they all decided we should all be driving around in diesel cars, which turned out to be completely wrong. Uh, no, the, de the decision on diesel was made uh, earlier than uh, earlier than Ed, and the diesel decision was actually the right one uh, for greenhouse gases. And everybody who made the decision knew that actually the decision on diesel. Was right for was right for the immediate challenge around greenhouse gases, but it had a long term issue which is now being addressed. So, well, you can uh, tell that to Jaguar. You can tell that to Jaguar Land Rover, John. Well, everybody knew. Everybody knew. Like it's not a secret. So that diesel was going to have to be dealt with at some point, but the greenhouse gases were the urgent... But doesn't that tell you, though, that people in government who start giving advice about the environment uh, and then admit later that it was only good for a certain period of time, why should we listen to them now? Uh, 
for exactly the reason you said, which is that the, the, that you should take advice that's right at the time. Well, then, um, which then turns out to be disastrously wrong. No, not disastrously wrong. It was right for the time, and it dealt with the most pressing issue, which is greenhouse gas. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the issue of diesel can be addressed in due course, and it's being addressed. And obviously we're now in the transition uh, to removing diesel and petrol cars completely from our streets, uh, which will be done in, in the UK because uh, of Michael Gove's policy decision uh, by the decade between 2030 and 2040. So, you know, we're really... So whatever we do right. now might be completely wrong in 10 years, is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that, ever, that, saying that what we do now is, a contrib is not the end point. Uh, greening, decarbonising our economy is going to be a process uh, which leads to an end point of a cleaner world and a much more energy efficient uh, world, and one actually in which the costs of production for manufacturing and for service industries is lower, and actually one in which, therefore, we can be more. We can, if we take that huge cost off businesses, they can become much more profitable. Yes. Well, I mean, there might not be any businesses left by the end of this year, so we'll see how that goes. Well, I think that's. I mean, the the the, the priority for uh, the government. I mean, everybody's agenda is taking a big hit with with coronavirus, but um, I think the levelling up agenda is totally totally off the table now. And that the priority for the for the rest of this year uh, and for next year is going to be getting the economy uh, up onto its feet again. And so it will be trying to prevent the whole economy being levelled down to London rather than trying to spread our prosperity to the rest of the country. It's going to be a huge challenge for a lot of the aspirations that uh, uh, Q Star and Ray Miliband have, uh, or that um, Michael Gove uh, and um, Rishi Sunak and um, Boris Johnson have. This is a very challenging time, and the, uh, I think, going back to this question of the shadow cabinet, is it the best shadow cabinet that Kia could have? No, there's a lot of talent on the back benches, like uh, Liz Kendall, Yvette Cooper, um, Peter Kyle, uh, Pat McFadden. Um, is it the cabinet he's going to go into the next election with? No, it isn't. Um, are they fit for the task? I think, yeah, Rachel Reeves is a very good match for, for Michael Gove, actually. I think uh, Jonathan Ashworth has shown... Uh, that he's the, he's, the right, he's the right kind of person to be the health secretary at the moment. Yeah, well, he's the one guy that survived. It wouldn't have made much sense, to be fair, to get rid of the guy who's been on the case since yeah, it's been, no, since it's been starting. The one I would suggest to you is slightly mm. bizarre is David Lammy at Justice. I mean, this is a bloke who called people who voted for Brexit Nazis. David Lammy at Justice is actually a good idea, given uh, that he, show, he showed over Windrush... Uh, both a passion and an eloquence. And I think what we actually need in our justice system is that combination. I wouldn't of... suggest that he's elo eloquent in any way, shape or form. I don't know where you get that from. He's a very, very... He's very shrill. He spends most of his time shouting at people uh, and, he, and he considers anyone uh, who criticises him to be a racist. No, he, can, he, he by and large calls racist racist, which I think is a fair call to be. Yeah, and he calls uh, everyone racist. He called Brexit voters racists. He called them Nazis. David Lammy is a very, very strong appointment to give a sense of a very different uh, front bench, and one, I think, which will have different uh, position. And he will, together with, um, uh, with the Shadow Home Secretary, uh, continue to pursue the issue around not just the way the justice system operates, but the way in which uh, the Windrush scandal has not been dealt with. There's been no compensation paid out to uh, the people whose lives were ruined by, uh, by the Home Office. I think it actually brings 
uh, a freshness to. to well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll make a, I'll make a bet with you that if he does not temper the way that he speaks, he will be the first resignation from the shadow cabinet. No one ever resigns from a shadow cabinet. They are resigned. Well, you, you, know you get you get my drift. Yeah, I think um, I would definitely take that bet. He won't be the first. He won't be the first person to be. To, to, to be moved or removed from the shadow cabinet. Mm. Well, it's going to be a fascinating time, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, as far as the whole um, uh, sort of cooperation thing is concerned, yeah. I spoke to Annalise Dodds yesterday. She said yeah. that the, the, like, the shadow cabinet are hoping to set up a sort of a COVID-19 committee of their own, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and you're also going to have a situation where Keir Starmer wants to be part of something that the government is doing. I'm not sure that they're going to um, take that on board. Let me just interrupt myself here by saying that uh, Michael Gove is self-isolating as a member of his family, apparently, has displayed symptoms of COVID-19. Um, so that's another one from the, the Cabinet itself, who's, who's going to be out of the way for a while. Sorry. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, will Keir Starmer be able to take part in some form of joint um, um, programme with the government, or do you think they'll just well, rebuff him? Well, the thing, the thing about having a leader like Keir Starmer as opposed to a leader like Jeremy Corbyn is um, you can actually... The civil service can give him briefings, and he won't misuse them. They'll give him briefings on, on uh, Privy Council terms, and he will be able to use that information. And I think that's the important thing. The important... I mean, uh, ideally... You might look to Australia to see what the Australians have done. Where there's a national cabinet being formed by the by the Liberal, uh, the Conservative uh, leader there, Scott Morrison, where he brings in the heads of all the states, the premiers of all the states, uh, into meetings with them centrally. And I think actually some kind of uh, not a government of national unity, but some kind of national national cabinet would be an interesting idea. But I'd bring Sadiq Khan in, I'd bring uh, Nicola Sturgeon in, I'd potentially bring Keir Starmer in, not to um, not to override the decisions uh, of, the, of the of the NHS or of the chief medical officer, but actually some of the things we are going to be doing, particularly the exit strategy, is is going to be complicated. It'll have some risks, it'll have some costs, and it will have you know in the end, the challenge we have is that we have to make political decisions on balancing risks and costs. You can't simply listen to the scientists. You can't simply listen to the economists. Because, you know, you listen to the scientists, will crash the economy. You listen to the economists, uh, business leaders, and you might actually uh, crash society. Yes, but you shouldn't also, surely you shouldn't also policy. listen, you shouldn't also listen, should you, to uh, members of a party who lost an election massively and who the public have no faith in? Uh, the question is whether you believe in a democracy. Democracy does not say that whoever wins the election gets to be, to make, to make, I'm afraid, I'm afraid it does, John. No, it does. Sorry, well, when you, Tony Blair, excuse me, when you were in Downing Street with Tony Blair, hang on, hang on. No, you're completely wrong. No, well, you've got to let me, let me put this question to you then, right? John, let me put this question to you. When you were in Downing Street with Tony Blair, when did you give the Conservatives the ability to join in your decision-making? The Conservative, the Conservative leadership were given uh, Privy Council briefings on many issues of national security. Well, that's part of the Constitution. That doesn't mean they made the decisions. They were told what was happening. They weren't they asked to, to contribute. I, I'm making a very simple point to you, which you seem to resist, which is that winning an election doesn't mean that the opposition parties have to shut their mouths for five years. I'm not saying that. Actually, well, you did. No, they I'm saying they don't take happy. part in the decision-making process. I wasn't saying that. I was saying... Some of these decisions that we're going to make are going to require 
a broader consensus than that cons- than what can simply be achieved within the, the Conservative Party. No, I don't agree with that. There are, massive, there are massive issues. Well, did you? Well, let me ask you again, and and we're running out of time, so you'll have to answer me yeah, yes or no. <laughs> did you ever invite the Conservative Party into any decision-making process in the Tony Blair government? I'll take no for an answer. It's not an answer. We didn't have COVID nineteen. So no, then, right? We didn't have COVID nineteen. Just say it. No. No, I'm saying to you, in this in this <laughs> extraordinary situation, it, it it seems perverse for you to say that all of the political wisdom on a, on decisions about the economy, on coming out of this the lockdown, that the, the entire wisdom of that is locked in the cabinet, which is currently. Um, yeah, yeah, well, I don't see why, if anybody knows anything from the Labour Party, they've got anything to add. I mean, since you say it's a completely unprecedented event, there's nobody that can bring any experience. I certainly don't want David Lammy in there, and I don't want anybody else who's never been in government in there either. And that's pretty much most of them. Yeah, but you can have Keir Starmer present in meetings, because, and you could have Nicola Sturgeon from the SNP, because she's in government. Sadiq Khan is in government. Sadiq Khan is a local mayor. Why would he be in national government? He's not a local mayor. He's the leader. He is. The leader. He's, no, he's the leader of the greatest city in the world. He's a local mayor. That makes it. It's not. The mayor of London is never going to be a local mayor. The mayor of London was the leading politician. Well, I think he should get. I, should, I think he should get busy sorting out transport for London before he starts messing around with what the government's doing nationally. John, listen, I'm going to let you go. We're out of time. John McTiernan, former political secretary for Tony Blair. He seems a bit confused this morning. Normally, he's very sensible. Uh, this is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's go straight now to Victoria Borwick, former Deputy Mayor of London, with Boris Johnson, former Conservative MP as well. Victoria, very good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. Thank you very much indeed for for joining us. It's a rather momentous time to be involved in uh, broadcasting and involved in politics. And uh, how are you you coping with it all, Victoria? Well, I have had had my husband who's um, been through it all, so I have a great sympathy with anybody who's suffering. Fortunately, my husband didn't end up in hospital but you know i know there were a lot of families worried across the country and i think that's where all our thoughts are yes of course it's boris who's taking the headlines because he's our he's our prime minister and it was a pleasure to to serve him um you know when he was the mayor of london and as you say there's plenty of things to keep you going in london we were when i was working for boris we were preparing for the olympics and then we had the olympics and then of course it was the uh, the, the the legacy and i'm sure we're going to come back to the legacy of the COVID crisis in, in, in due course, if not today. But the thing about today's crisis, you know, we know lots of families who are suffering. You know, Boris is a family member. You know, he's a son, he's a father, he's a brother. He's got his whole family. He's got a child on the way. Yeah. And I think, you know, everyone's concerned about their, their, their loved ones. But, you know, that's the thing about Boris. Everyone relates to him, every age group. You know, I think the whole country, as we've seen, will wish him well. And, uh, you know, he likes being the heart of the action. He's a strong guy. You know, he's somebody who likes to be in charge. He'll be listening, as he's been saying all the way along, he must listen to the experts. He, you know, he loves working with a great team around him. Yes. And interestingly enough, I was saying this to someone last night because I think we were all shocked. I mean, I've, I've been reading, you know, pieces on Facebook and, and, and things on social media that people were posting from last night. Because I'd been saying that, you know, at some point or other during this crisis, we will all know someone who has probably got coronavirus. And it almost seems as though last night was the moment because, as you say, Boris is such a universally sort of admired figure. I mean, apart from the sort of the token lefties who hate him, 
most people basically look at him and see him as a really great leader um, and, a, and a character and a charismatic figure. And it feels as though we know him, even if we don't. I think you're right. He's a sort of character when, you know, the going gets tough, the tough get going. He yeah. wants to lead. He wants to be in charge. He understands the responsibility and the trust that people have put in him um, to, you know, to be a good prime minister and to get us out of this crisis. I mean, the thing is, from a personal point of view and working for him, you know, we know Boris is liberal. We know Boris wants to give people freedom. He wants, you know, he, he wants people to succeed. You know, he, he wants to empower people. So this would be so out of... You know, all these restrictions will be so out of his character. But, of course, we now know it's the only thing to do to keep everyone safe. Yes, exactly right. And so, as far as Boris as an individual is concerned, I mean, you can imagine him sitting in Downing Street and hoping to keep the reins of government going and hoping to still be in charge. He was obviously much more unwell, I suppose, than, than he was letting on. Yes, I mean, I think if you... I mean, judging from my own husband, who, when he was really, really sick, he literally slept for about 15 hours a day. And certainly... Uh, really? ...wouldn't have been running anything, let alone government. Now, right. I, I'm, I'm sure, however, that Boris would have been at the same way he's always attacked everything in, in life. He would have said, oh, I can fight this. And, you know, he would have wanted to feel that, you know, that, that he could. But we now know what a devastating virus it is, you know, every day... We see the deaths and we have to realise that, you know, if you are going to get sick, for heaven's sakes, go to bed and rest. And I think the thing is now, you know, the next three days are going to be crucial. You know, we know he's in intensive care. We know he's probably having, you know, extra support in the sense of oxygen. You know, we'll know that if he can stick with just that and whatever else they're pumping into him... Mm then, you know, the next three days is crucial and then he can going to need recover and we're going to need as, if we really want to support Boris, we really must say, OK, let's stop asking for hour-by-hour accounts and yes. let the guy get better and let the team... I mean, that's the thing about the government. You know, he'll have a good team in Downing Street, his own team there. I was pleased to see that, you know, Eddie Lister, who'd been his chief of staff and various other members of his close team from his mayoral days are, are, still, are still there. Um, and then he'll have the whole cabinet team and I know you know I'm sure that everyone will will pull through of course just as you've highlighted this morning there's going to be different conflicts there's mm. going to be the health side saying lock everybody up we've got to stay inside and heaven's sakes doesn't this demonstrate to everybody why we have whilst of course we'll have those people who are running businesses saying how soon can we you know let the reins of this lockdown and these straps you know that are holding us all back you know, get going again. Of course there are going to be conflicts, but I shouldn't, don't think we should see those as negative. We should see as people having an open debate um, as to, you know, as as to getting us through this and then hopefully getting everybody back on the, on the road to recovery again. Yeah. You know, I was pleased that Sir Keir Starmer and some of the other people just are going to be on the COVID cabinet in the sense they're going to get proper briefings yes. about what's going on because I think we do need transparency and honesty. And that's where I think people like... Um, Sadiq and the other mayors across the country have a role to play ensuring they're getting the right briefings but um, then it's their job to manage their patches. Well exactly right and I don't think Sadiq Khan has particularly covered himself with glory in, in particular with the way he's run Transport for London because I personally and I mean I, I, I speak as an individual and you may take this as important or not but whenever it was that he changed the, ta the timetable of the, of the underground to weekends and I got on a train one morning and I was pressed up against a load of people because they were only running eight minutes apart. I just thought, this is crazy. And he hasn't fixed that, and that's still a problem. Yeah, I mean, they're saying, of course, that it's all to do with the, the number of people who are self-isolated. Yeah, I'm not buying that. 
But as soon as, of course, you halve the number of tubes and trains and halve the stations, then, of course, the, other, the rest of the stations then become doubly busy. Right, exactly. I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? No. I mean, the terrible pictures of people, you know, who are key workers, and there's quite a lot of key workers after all. It's not just our great, wonderful NHS and our carers. It's all the, as you say, it's the other carers going about. It's all the utility companies. Well, it's all the people working in the shops as well. I mean, yeah. there's an awful lot of people working in supermarkets who are, as far as I'm concerned, very unheralded, but are playing a very important role. That's right. I mean, there's so many key workers that need to be supportive, and now they're, they're half their opportunities of actually being able to get to work. Yes, exactly right. So, I mean, as far as the kind of uh, the way that this is all playing out as well, I don't think that any of us are to surprise, but I think, as I said earlier, the whole sort of um, meaning of Boris Johnson becoming this ill, I think is a bit of a wake-up call to a lot of people as well. Those people in particular I'm thinking of who thought that really the only people who are going to be upset and, and, and damaged by this are, are people with underlying health problems. Yes, or well, people who are extremely elderly. Yeah. And I think there was a sort of almost a dismissive attitude towards that. And I think now we all realise, and I think if anything could have brought home to everybody, um, you know, how important it is. You know, uh, I mean, the Queen talked about self-discipline, and heaven's sakes, that's something we've all got to demonstrate now. Um, and, you know, however you, felt, you might have felt, oh, it's all right, why do I have to worry? The yes. fact that you've absolutely summarised brings, brings it round to everybody. Yes, exactly right. And do you sense that there is um, a, a very important week sort of to come in the sense of uh, what we do next? Because obviously there will be those who uh, will look at the numbers and decide that perhaps things are plateauing out, perhaps things are flattening out, um, or they will decide that perhaps we need to do more to self-isolate people uh, and stop them from going out altogether. I think, of course, it's a very difficult week in the sense that we're coming up to Easter so it's very much a holiday week and of course it's Holy Week and I know that's where a lot of people have got their thoughts and prayers on all those that are sick and I think the, the, the lesson is going to be the experts saying whether or not we definitely should have another 10 days or two weeks in, in lockdown um, and that's going to be dependent on the figures and it's really if you think back that they say the, you know, the sort of gestation period is a week or so, it really is dependent on how people behaved a week, ten days ago yes. to see how the death toll and how the hospital admissions go, of course, for the rest of this week. I mean, at the moment, there is still capacity um, across the NHS as a whole, although individual hospitals are, are, are obviously um, coming to a, a problem and, and coming to a hiatus. But overall, there is still capacity, and that's why it behoves every single one of us to have that self-discipline and to not infect other people or put more pressure on, on the key workers in the NHS. Absolutely. Well, Victoria, I wish you all the best, and best wishes to your husband as well. Glad he's recovered uh, from the coronavirus that he had. Victoria Borwick there, the former um, Deputy Mayor of London with Boris Johnson, saying, as I said earlier, that he is such a character, he is such a charismatic figure, uh, that we all feel as if we know him, and that therefore means that we all feel somehow sad about the fact that he has had to go into uh, intensive care. However, uh, we will bring you news about that whenever there is some to bring you. Uh, at the moment, he's still, as far as we understand it, not on a ventilator. He is still in St Thomas's Hospital. <laughs>
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Ian Collins coming up at one o'clock, of course. Mark Dolan in uh, for Dan Wooden at four as well. We'll be bringing you all the news uh, from Downing Street, all the news from St Thomas's Hospital and everything as it happens when it happens. You'll hear it here first. Right now, though, uh, we're going to go back to our favourite uh, space expert, Greg Smy Rumsby from AstronomyNow.com because, believe it or not, this week, as if it wasn't dramatic enough, uh, we're going to be having a pink supermoon and we think it might be visible tomorrow. Uh, welcome, Greg, and thank you for joining us once more for homeschooling on Talk Radio. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. I should have, sorry, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, it depends on which part of the world you're in, I suppose. But uh, that, is, that is very true. Now, the first question I have for you is, why is it called a pink moon if it isn't pink? Uh, North American indigenous tribes uh, saw that the uh, wild ground flocks was uh, blooming, and it's blooming pink. Uh, so they associated that with the, the moon in April, effectively. Uh, so when we have a full moon in April, it's nearly always called a pink moon. Okay. End of story, that's it. That's interesting because one of the things I always say uh, when I talk about the super moons that we now see and the, the blue moons and all sorts of other moons, I don't remember when I was growing up that we used to have all these different types of moons. We weren't told about them maybe, but I guess they were still there. Yes, there's lots of sort of mythology and, and uh, you know, what do you call it, just the history of cultures around the world that have names for different moons and they all have different names for different moons. Right. Um, but it's usually usually a full moon. And, of course, you've got to remember that many religions around the world associate some of their calendric um, uh, ceremonies and celebrations are connected with the moon. Right. So it, it's, it's not an unusual thing, although astronomers tend to call it a full moon. End of story. Right. That's what I mean. But it will look a lot bigger, won't it, than a normal moon? Yes, it will. That's why we have these supermoons at the moment. There's a sequence uh, where if, if the moon, when it's full, uh, is within the 90% of its closest approach to the Earth, uh, then it's called a supermoon. But once again, astronomers tend not to use that phraseology. It was okay. introduced in 1979, and it's just simply hanging around a little bit. The moon will be about 7% bigger than its usual size. It's 356,000 kilometres away from the Earth, as opposed to 384,000 kilometres from the Earth. So it is a little closer. Whether anybody, as a single human being, walking down a pavement, looking up at the moon this evening, uh, not that they should be outside... Uh, whether they'll notice any difference in yes. the size of the moon, I, I, I would find that very hard to believe. 7% is really a very small fraction. Right. You've also got the, the, the moon illusion, which is the fact that it appears larger when it's near the horizon than when it's high up overhead. Mm. Uh, and that is to do with our brains being programmed in the daytime. It's got nothing to do with the moon. It's just the way we perceive the sky. Okay. So as a result, when we put that image of the moon into uh, a nighttime environment. For us, when it's near the horizon, it appears bigger. That is all it's doing. It's just our brains processing the information. Because I remember being in Turkey one summer and I was sitting looking out to sea and I could see this giant moon that was on the horizon. And it was at night and it was a kind of orange colour, but it was huge. And I've never seen anything like yeah. it. No, absolutely. And, and the scenic's going to be good, but please, I'm, I'm going to say this without any, you know, I don't want people to, to, to wander around. Do you know what I mean? I yes. don't want to, to get in their cars and go away. They need to do this from their homes. If yes. they have a garden or a balcony, do it from that environment. 
but the moon this evening will stay fairly low. It's not, it's not in any of the constellations that are high up overhead, which is good from the point of view of the moon illusion, where it will appear to be bigger. It's going to be an amazing photographic opportunity this evening for quite a while. So as it rises around about 6 o'clock this evening and sets tomorrow morning at about 6 o'clock, uh, you get a good opportunity at some time during the evening to photograph this wonderful moon. And if you can get something in the foreground, you know, a church spire or right. a tree or something, uh, which will silhouette against the bright moon, that makes an, an amazing photographic opportunity. And I imagine uh, you see the moon in different ways from different parts of the world. But when we look at the moon, say, for example, from London, do we always see the same bit of it? Oh, yes, pretty much, because the moon, the moon uh, keeps the same face pointed towards the Earth, right. more or less. Uh, and, and as a result, uh, every place on the Earth will see more or less the same part of the moon at the same time in, with the same illumination. Hmm. So if you see it uh, as a half moon, what we call first quarter, uh, then, then every part, part of the planet that has access to the moon for its night or day cycle, it will see it in the same way. But... If you're in Australia, the moon will be upside down because obviously you're upside down because you're stuck on a, a globe and you're around the other side of the globe. So yes. The moon to you will be the wrong way up. So the man in the moon, the face of the man in the moon, will actually be upside down in Australia? Yeah, but some people don't see it as that on, on a full moon. A full moon's a really good way of looking at the, the dark mare, the seas. The yes. Latin word for sea is mare. They still have that terminology. The, the linguistics of the moon is born out of an age of discovery and, and also just history and, and uh, you know, uh, customs of, of ancient worlds and things. But those, those seas are actually just large impact basins. They're, right. they're bigger than 500 kilometers across, so astronomers tend to call them basins instead of craters. And they have a darkening, partly due to the nature of the surface, but also because the impactors that hit the moon to form those basins in the first place brought with them uh, sort of... Um, a different chemistry, um, nearly always a little bit heavier in iron. And that's what darkens the surface of those seas. And photographing the moon is, is an easy task. If you've got a telephoto lens, great, because you don't need to follow the moon as the Earth spins, because it's such a bright object, you just click, shoot and click, shoot and click, that would be good. Yes. So the Earth spins, but the moon doesn't, in other words, because if the moon did spin, presumably we would see other bits of it, whereas now we only see the one uh, face. Uh, my, Mike, it's the absolute other way round. Is it? The moon does spin, and it matches the spin that it takes to go round once on its axes. Matches exactly how long it takes to orbit the Earth. Wow! And so it only so it only shows so it only shows one side, though. Correct, because it keeps it keeps that that time period matching. So as it goes around the Earth, the, the same face is pointing towards the Earth because it is spinning. If it didn't spin and stayed exactly stationary on its axes, we would see the whole surface of the moon, but we don't. Because we were spinning. No, 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 because it orbits the Earth. It's got right. nothing to do with our spinning. Everybody it's in Britain's exactly. now trying to work this out with their fingers, by the way. They're all kind of trying to make this motion <laughs> to see whether whether they can make that work. I can't... I See, this is where science flummoxes me, because I just can't get this at all now. OK, so I'll just try and... Try, try one more time to explain it to an idiot. Well, OK, right. So uh, forget the Earth spinning. That's got nothing to do with it. Okay. It's the fact that it orbits the Earth. Right. So imagine, look at your hand. Put your hand out in front of you. Yes. OK? Palm up. And just let it, 
and let it go round you. Let it go round. Yes. Okay, keeping the keeping the palm facing you. Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. Now do the whole exercise again, but make absolutely certain that your the back of your hand uh, is continuously facing the wall yes. opposite you. Right. Now I want you to move your hand around you, but make sure the face of the hand keeps pointing towards the same wall. And as it goes around you, oh, I see, right? Yeah. Your hand. Okay. You're now seeing the back of your hand, so the moon yeah. does spin. Otherwise, if it didn't, we would see the whole of the lunar surface. Right. And so we 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 call it the dark side of the moon. I imagine you guys don't ah, call it that. What about that? Absolutely. There is a there is a dark side, and we can chase that. We can actually see how the dark side goes all the way around the moon during the whole lunar month, mm. and that's because the moon is illuminated by the sun. So as it orbits the Earth we actually see different parts of that illumination, but yes. the same the same face of the moon, Okay, different illumination. All that, right. that's, that's how it's all different. And, of course, I'll have to ask you the, the, the final question about the impact of the moon on individual sort of personalities because I know we all know about how it controls the tides and all of that, but lunatic, the word comes from lunar, you know, people who are affected by the full moon. Is that a thing? Well, Hogarth did a wonderful engraving of lunatics, and it, it was more associated with the idea that the um, government at the time had set up a, a, a sort of a council in order for us to try and work out navigation accurately. Right. And they were all coming up with weird and wonderful ideas. One was flares across the, the, the oceans. Another one was um, stabbing a dog, taking it on board. It was not allowed to die. And then this powder of sympathy was brought out of a cupboard at a certain point in time and then plunged into the powder after having, of course, been plunged into the powder when you wounded the dog in the yes. first place. But the dog <laughs> is now on board a boat. And it was all these crazy ideas. There were loads of crazy ideas. And that's really where Hogarth's uh, engraving sort of comes into its own, the idea you've got all these lunatic ideas, mm. lunatic, to do with navigation and the moon and everything else because there was the famous lunar distance method of navigation, which does work, but it's very difficult to implement on board the deck of a rolling ship. That's why Harrison, John Harrison, and his famous clocks actually won the day. It wasn't the lunar distance method. Okay. So that's really where the lunatics come in. Okay. Well, I'm speechless, Greg. Once again, sorry, you've managed to... Uh, no, you've managed to uh, absolutely nail it, I have to say. Greg Smyre-Rumsby, thank you so much. Space expert from astronomynow.com. He's been on three times now, quite simply, because he's the best guy to get to explain anything to do with anything to do with space. Although I'm still trying to put my hand around my back and keep it pointed in one direction. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be doing that for the rest of the day now, trying to figure it out. Uh, this is Talk Radio. That was homeschooling. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll have something else for you tomorrow. Uh, like I said, if you want anything else covered, just do let us Talk know. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.